Blessed God and Father, we're very conscious and we're aware that we are now in your presence. And even more striking, you have come into ours. And dear God, we're aware of that. And we want to praise your name that because of the blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are welcome there. Thank you, O God, that we can come. Thank you that we can come with every sorrow. Thank you that we can come with every fear. Thank you that we can come with every struggle. Thank you that we can come with anxiety. Thank you that we can come with guilt. Thank you that we can come with gifts and offerings. Thank you that we can come just as we are. Bless you, God, that we can come. And I want to pray now that you'll minister grace, lead everyone to believe and trust you. And I pray that when we dismiss from here, every soul's redeemed, every person recaptured, everyone lit a flame for Jesus Christ because you've come here by the Holy Spirit and detonated a glory bomb to Jesus' name. Would you please do it now? In his name we pray. Amen, church. Please be seated. Thank you for being here. Let me invite your attention to Nehemiah chapter 3 and 4. Many of you may not be aware that uh, two or three years ago, we remodeled a couple of buildings here on the property. The one that's over this way, building B, and the one uh, far behind us, building C, they connect in the uh, northwest corner of the property. And uh, it, it was time to do something with that. And it was a remarkable, remarkable effort on the part of the people. What happened during that time is that our people gave so much to the project, they gave more than what was needed by about $140,000. They gave more than what was needed. Folks, in a church, they gave more than what was needed. And that enabled us to replace some air conditioning units. But when the air conditioning guys got up, in Building B, to look. We hadn't planned on doing that in Building B, this building over here. But when they got up there, they came down real quickly and locked the building up. The roof was in the process of collapsing. It had collapsed about an inch and a half in some places. The truss system failed. It had been disintegrating for about 30 years. And then a month before in August, there was a storm that came through that hit the roof with a tremendous thud. And it began to shake some things loose. Folks, there, there were Sunday school rooms under that roof. There was a fellowship hall under that roof. There's a basement under that roof. Ladies and gentlemen, our people gave more than enough, and we discovered the problem. The insurance came, company came through, took responsibility for it, and replaced the entire roof. We were able to remodel both those wings of the property, both those buildings of the property, and replace the roof because the people gave more than enough. That was a marvelous effort, and I remember how we did it. I began the series with, or began the effort, um, uh, they wanted me to begin the effort by preaching a series of messages and applying it to the project. We called it the Act 22 Project. I did that for a couple of months, and then we educated the people and informed them. We, we approved the project, then we began to raise money, and it moved forward remarkably. Now, if you're a guest with us today, we don't have you here to get your money. Don't misunderstand me. Our church members take care of that. But ladies and gentlemen, that was a remarkable effort. Whenever, and here's what I want you to get from it, whenever we do the will of God together, when we do God's will together, God will bless us every time. He'll take care of us all of the way. And that's what you find in Nehemiah 3 and 4. They're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They're doing it together. 
And they're very, very deliberate, very careful, very godly in how they take care of it. In fact, in Nehemiah 3, they rebuild the walls, but they rebuild the gates as well. Because it's not enough to have walls, you've got to get inside of them. And so they had ten gates around the city, and they rebuilt them. And some of these gates correspond to the priorities the church has given our Great Commission Facilities Committee when it comes to our facilities. Now, about 15 months ago, the church tasked the Great Commission Facilities Committee with the task of studying our property, location, and facilities, and coming back with a report and recommendations as to what we could do with our property and location and facilities to reach more people for Jesus Christ. Then in January, they gave us some priorities, and some of these priorities correspond to what you find in Nehemiah chapter 3. And the thing I want you to remember, a couple of things. God's will is more important than anything else in life. More important than my will, my satisfaction, more important than any individual church member's will, more important than a denomination's will, more important than anything. God's will is always number one. Number two, when we do God's will, God supplies for it every step of the way. It's a remarkable thing. I had a friend one time who said, if it's God's will, it's God's bill. And that's what happened in the Act 22 project. Now, the Great Commission Facilities Committee has been working for 15 months. And uh, they're at the point where as they get information, they're going to release it to the congregation. Uh, They don't have everything. Uh, Not everything's finalized. Not everything's finished. In fact, it can't be till the church votes on it. But the truth is, is that they've got some information, and we're going to begin releasing it to you. I'm preaching on it this morning, and then we'll go through a process of getting information to you, and I think it's going to be remarkable. I want you to see uh, in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse number 13, their behavior and the theme of their service, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 4 of Nehemiah. Nehemiah says, Therefore, I position men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bow. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the leaders and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. This is what they're doing here in the text. They're doing God's will, and they're doing it together in chapter 3 and 4. Make that abundantly clear. Now, there are several things I want to cover with you this morning by way of initial communication. First is the process. First is the process. Starting next Sunday and going on for about four Sundays after that, uh, team members of the Great Commission Facilities Committee will visit adult Sunday school classes, and they will begin to explain some of their thinking, some of their rationale, and they'll take questions. They'll do that from uh, October 13th to November 10th. Then after church, Sunday, November the 10th, we're inviting the whole congregation to join us for a meal and a presentation by the architect that's been working with us uh, several months. He's going to have designs, drawings, and some detail, and it's going to be an exciting time. And we're going to ask you to come with us and begin to dream that if we unify and do God's will, what could God do in this place? And we'll solicit some feedback from there as well. And then starting November the 11th or January the 9th, uh, we will have, my wife and I will have folks into our home. Did you know that? You, okay. Good. Okay. I, I told you. Okay. All right. We will have folks in our home and we'll go through another round of communication and another round of, uh, of feedback uh, at our home. And then, um, and by the way, 
50% of the time, these kinds of dates change a little, so be a little flexible with us. But uh, possibly as soon as January 12th, we'll have one other meeting where we will discuss the project that the Great Commission Facilities Committee is recommending, and the earliest that we could vote on this to approve it, if that's what we need to do, would be January the 26th. Uh, That's about the earliest, but here's what we're looking at. Uh, We're looking at uh, that round and that approach to communicating and giving information. Now, that is four months and four rounds of feedback, which is what we did in the Act 22 project. Now, if the church approves that, then February 2nd to the end of April, April 26th, we will begin a uh, financial fundraising campaign during that time, with April 26th being the date when we give our pledges or our offerings. And then um, in May 2020, we're really not on the hook for any, and we're not obligated to anything really until May 2020, eight months from now, when uh, documents and contracts and those kind of things would have to be signed. But let me, let me summarize this in several ways. One, this is four months of information and four rounds of communication. Then a total of seven months. And then finally, this resembles the Act 22 project that was so successful and was blessed of God. That's the first thing, the process. The second thing I want to communicate to you is the need. Uh, In Jerusalem, there were several gates that correspond to the needs, actually, that we have with our facility. There was first the sheep gate, and that indicates an evangelism need. Chapter 3 and verse number 1. Eliashib, the high priest, rose with his brethren, the priest, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. Now, why in Jerusalem would sheep be so important? Why would sheep be so important in Jerusalem? Well, they had a sacrificial system to cover the sins of the people and to display and preview the gospel of Christ. Those little lambs that were sacrificed on the altar of the temple would one day become God's own lamb sacrificed on the altar of the cross. And that's what they're previewing there. Uh, and that's how God pays for the sins of the world. And so whenever they made sacrifices, they were declaring and displaying the saving gospel of Christ, what would become the saving gospel of Christ. The sacrificial system was not only atonement, the sacrificial system was evangelism, and the church has given this committee an evangelism priority or an evangelism need. What can we do with our property and facilities to enhance our evangelistic outreach? Well, the charge does that. They're to look at the property and facilities and location in an effort to reach more people for Jesus Christ. Then there's the reality of our current location. Athens and the Athens region, including the counties that surround us, have more in common with Seattle, Washington than they do Atlanta, Georgia, when it comes to the Christian faith. Only 2% of our area here, the metro area of athens Clark County, is in church on a Sunday. 98% are not. Ladies and gentlemen, that's Pacific Northwest and that is Northeast United States numbers. There are more in the Atlanta metro area, as big a city as it is. There is a crying need. We do not have the luxury of focusing merely on ourselves. Our community needs the good news of Jesus Christ. We have an evangelism need and we have an evangelism priority. The research shows also that in our community, the market, the desire 
for traditional worship and traditional structures is very, very low. It's minuscule. In fact, it's decreasing with every year is what it is. And so the market research shows that, and uh, it's something that we've got to take into account. The appearance from the highway of the worship center is very lovely and very inspiring to me, but I'm an insider. That's who I am. I'm an insider. Many of us are insiders to the Christian faith. But we have members of our committee who years ago when they began looking for churches and thinking that they might return to God were very intimidated by it because they felt, I'm not worthy to come in there. If you knew my past, you just wouldn't know. You, you just wouldn't want me. And the appearance of the worship center from the highway actually discourages some people from coming. Now, thank God for the growth that we've been given. But quite frankly, we need to do more. The shape of the, um, uh, of the inside here is something that needs to be taken into consideration about evangelism. Quite frankly, uh, when uh, we get, uh, when, when I view folks about two-thirds of the way back, it's hard to see them eye to eye. It was especially when we were in, in one service. It's a little better now, but quite frankly, um, the worship center is deep enough to where we begin to lose folks, and uh, some of that's due to the fact that it's on flat ground as well. That is a challenge. Then, when people walk the aisle, some of them feel like they're walking down a very long corridor. And it's very difficult and a very big challenge for them as, uh, as well. Um, projections. Let me give you some projections here. Let me say a couple things about projections. It's very foolish to guarantee the future. I cannot do that. But the projections I've made since coming to Beach Haven almost six years ago, the church has outperformed. I've been more dour in projections and modest in projections, and you all have exceeded the projections I've made. So let me tell you where we are. We started two worship services hoping that by May of 2020, we would have grown 20% in our worship attendance. Ladies and gentlemen, after four Sundays, you've grown by 23%. Praise God. You've outperformed expectations. Thank the Lord. But do you understand, when January rolls around, we get another bump. It is, it is possible, and I can't promise the future. I'm not making promises here, um, and, and I don't want to be too tight on the projection. But with the rate that we're going, by the end of April, we may have growth reaching 40 to 50% over what we were in, uh, in one service. And then school returns in August of 2020, we're looking at another bump. Quite frankly, what we're looking at, and this is what I need you to pay attention to, what we're looking at is that we're looking at being at full comfort capacity by next fall. Are you hearing me? We're looking at being full comfort capacity next fall. And if we don't do something, you start losing people because of the inconvenience of getting around the property is oftentimes what happens. Now, somebody might say, we'll just go to three services. Well, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Uh, what that means is that in about uh, 14, 15 months, we will have gone from one service to three, which means, which means we have to triple our music force, triple our extended session workers, triple our ushers. We'd have to go to two Sunday schools. In other words, it, it would be a temporary thing. The, the property and the hallways and, and the flow of traffic on the property, it'd be enormously difficult to maintain that for long. It might be a temporary solution. I'm not promising it's going to happen, but I just want to let you know the way projections go around here, 
That's what we are possibly looking at. Now, did you hear me say I'm not guaranteeing anything? Did you hear me shake your head like this? Good. Okay. Um, that's what we're looking at possibly in the future. Folks, because of our evangelism need, we need to do something. We need to do something. But there's not only an evangelism need, there is also a fellowship need. Chapter 3, verse 2. Look there. Now, Eliashib, next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Next to. That phrase, next to, is used over and over again throughout the third chapter. And it is a theme of the chapter. They did things next to one another. They were in fellowship with one another. Then in chapter 3, verse 31, there is a gate that is mentioned here in Hebrew, Mithkad, which in English is the muster gate. It's where soldiers would muster or gather uh, before they uh, commenced on their mission. They were together. We have that kind of need here at Beach Haven. Now, I want to compliment you and say your commitment to loving people and giving yourself to them is remarkable. Um, And I could go on and on about that. I hear that every week. I heard it this morning from some guests. You have loved their socks off, okay? That's what you've done. They feel it. They know it. They sense it. They feel that this is a place of love. And we hear that every week. Uh, My bride and I uh, do. And I thank you for that. But our facilities are working against us in that way. It's nobody's fault. That's just how they built facilities 50 years ago. But that's what's taking place. And here's what I want to show you. When my bride and I are out in the foyer after the service with our guest reception, and guess we've got a reception back there. We'd love to meet you. Here's what she and I see. You, you go out that area there, and there are three exits out there. There's an exit here, here, here. Let me count the exits. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and then an exterior exit, 11, 12, 13, 14, and middle school boys probably created one in the roof. I don't know. You've got all of these exits, so here's what happens. We don't have one place before or after worship where people converge where we can set our eyes on everyone. And so I will go weeks, you will go weeks without seeing some people, and we're the loving church. We're the fellowship church. We're the church committed to one another. And so there are a lot of missed ministry opportunities. We've got to do something. And I believe that we can throw jet fuel on the love and the commitment that we have to one another and to our guests uh, if we do something. So there's an evangelism need. There's a fellowship need. There's a worship need. Um, In chapter 3, verse 29 and 30, it talks about the eastern gate. And that's the eastern gate Jesus will come through, set himself up on his father David's throne, and receive the worship of the entire universe, the heavens and the earth. There's a worship need. There's a worship priority. The the, the platform up here really needs to be larger, but you can see that unless uh, you block the exits, which the fire marshal wouldn't appreciate, we really can't expand Uh, this. It's an enormous challenge. The sound that we have and the instrumentation that we have, we're going to keep doing this. We're not going to pull back any instruments uh, that are up here, but this building was not made for the kind of worship that we're doing, and it is enormously difficult to get the sound right. And so it's an enormous, enormous challenge. We have got a worship need. We need to do something. And then finally, we have got a stewardship need. Uh, 
in chapter uh, 3, verses 3 through 5, you have the fish gate. That's where fishermen would bring in their fish. They would sell. They would give to the temple. They'd take care of their family. They were financially responsible, and they were good stewards. Uh, the truth is, is that the committee has hired some experts, architects, a capital funds raiser, and also um, have consulted with banks. And they're asking the question, what kind of financial load and burden can we spare? And whenever they come out with recommendations, they're going to fall within those projections and they're going to be very, very responsible as, um, as they do. The big concern here, uh, the big concerns here are two. Number one, building costs are going up. I don't believe we can hardly afford to wait. But that's not all. It is enormously important to get the biggest bang for our buck. There is a church in northeast Georgia that just spent $5 million on its property and facilities. On the inside, you can't tell from the outside, and the members are rather disappointed that they didn't get anything out of it. They didn't get a big bang for their buck, and it's not moved them forward. We're not going to make those kind of mistakes. When we spend money, it's going to project us forward and fuel us forward in our needs. Well, there's some other priorities the church gave us that we may need to cover uh, some other day. But the point is, we've got needs. We've got to do something. Now, I want to share with you the path that we need to take as we walk together and as we do this together. What can I do? What path can I walk to make this effective in my own life? And how can I contribute my own walk with God to the church? There are four things. Number one, Scripture. Number one, Scripture. There are some Christians who make the mistake, however, of starting their walk with God with prayer. And that's a mistake. We don't start our walk with God with prayer. We start it with Scripture. Otherwise, you don't know the God to whom you're praying, and you don't know how to approach Him. So we're not presumptuous. We need to know the God of the Bible to approach Him appropriately. Jesus even um, uh, inferred this in John 15, 7. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done to you. So you abide in me, if you know me, and my words abide in you. That's scripture. Ask whatever you wish on those conditions and it shall be done for you. And so Jesus is saying here, in order to walk with him in power and effectiveness, we've got to know his word. And let me say to you, it is far more important that we hear from God than God hear from us. Far more important. So immersing ourselves in the word is the crying need of the hour. It will cleanse us. In remarkable ways. Jesus said in John 15, 3, a few verses above, you are already clean because of the word that I spoke to you. So first is scripture. Second is prayer. Prayer. Once we know the word, then we know how to pray and we know to whom we pray. And so prayer. Uh, I want to challenge all of us to expand our prayer life 15 to 30 minutes a day and plead with God for revival, plead with God on behalf of the committee, pray for the success of this whole project, ask God to come through in great power, and if you know Jesus Christ and you trust His promises, God promises He's going to hear you. Scripture, prayer, unity, unity. I've known people through the years who were born in the objective case and the kicative mood. Have you ever known anybody like that? 
I mean, the immediate reaction is to disagree and not to be open as if God might say something to me that I don't already know or that God might actually change my mind. See? Uh, unity. We, 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 we can't be that way. We can't have any objective case or kickative moods. We've got to be completely abandoned to God to do His will. And the way we do that, in part, is to unify with one another. The truth is, somebody might have an idea that is very, um, uh, very laudatory and, and wise that we've never thought of before. Ephesians 4.3 says, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In other words, be diligent about unity. Stretch, sweat, strive, strain, struggle, because unity is what scares the daylights out of hell and causes celebration in heaven. It pleases the Holy Spirit. But there's a fourth thing, and that is abandon. We abandon ourselves completely to the will of God. We tell God, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Lord, I'll sell a car, I'll downsize a house, I'll give up some property, I'll give up some dreams, I'll change our direction, um, whatever. And my family and I are already thinking about and praying about this. I proposed an idea to them that our family could do just a couple months ago, and I have to tell you, it really hurt. It really hurt. But we don't care. We want to do God's will. We, we want to be abandoned to God's will. Romans 12:1 says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The most reasonable thing someone can do is surrender to Jesus. The most unreasonable thing is to withhold ourselves from Him. In other words, we've got to make, for our own lives and our own selves, we've got to make some tough sacrificial decisions that we might see a movement of God among us. Uh, I've got something of a... Uh, interesting, I guess, or unusual, maybe I should say, uh, family history and family story. My mother passed away when I was 11 years old, and she was just 31. And we left Houston, Texas, and moved in with my father and his new wife in California. Well, I didn't realize it at the time. It didn't register with me. But with my stepmother came another grandfather. And he went one day from not having any grandchildren to having three. And I was the oldest, and he was enthused. He was excited. And after being there just a week, he took us out to dinner at a Chinese restaurant in town where he lived in Hanford, California. Now, he was into insurance and real estate, and that's, uh, that's what he did. He was born in that town. He went to church at the First United Methodist Church, a very strong Bible-believing church uh, in those days. He went into the Navy during World War II. He got out. He got his degree at UC Berkeley. And then he began to sell insurance and began to um, do real estate as well. Well, we come to this restaurant, this Chinese restaurant run by the Lee family, a Chinese family that had immigrated a few decades before. And I went from being a poor kid in Houston, and when I got in that restaurant, folks, I saw stuff I had never seen before. There must have been 12 entrees, mounds of rice, and a few things I could not identify as an 11-year-old boy. I mean, it was everywhere. It was remarkable. I had never seen so much in my life. And the whole family served us. And when we left, my grandfather, neither my grandfather nor my father paid for it. 
That was a little confusing. I didn't think that's how restaurants had operated. It's the first time I had ever been in a restaurant, in fact. But I knew enough to know when you go to a restaurant, you got to pay for it. Well, that stuck with me until about 1999 when my grandfather passed away. And when he passed away, my dad illuminated me and enlightened me on his story. I didn't know a lot of what he told me. He said that after World War II, he set up his real estate and insurance business in Hanford, California. And a few years later, Chinese immigrants began to move into the valley and began to move into Hanford, uh, where he lived. They sought him out for insurance and to help them find homes. And he helped them. He put himself to the task and gave himself to it. And um, uh, so the Lees began to move into Hanford, California, and began to move into the San Joaquin Valley, began to move into Kings County, and many of the white citizens of that city had an enormous problem with it. They did not want Chinese immigrants in Kings County or in Hanford, California. And so the people with whom my grandfather had business, insurance business, began to move their insurance from his agency someplace else, and he took a financial hit. They quit listing their homes and properties with him, so he took a hit. He went through several years of financial challenge and nevertheless, he stayed with the Lee family. He stayed with the Chinese immigrants and continued to serve them. He was usually a very happy and cheerful person, but if he was doing something right and you didn't like it, he just did more of it, is what he did. So he didn't flinch. He didn't get fragile. He didn't fear. He did the right thing. And so over the years, the Chinese immigrants and new people that came into the area because in 1961, a naval base was built real close. Folks began to move there and began to retire there. They sought him for insurance, and his real estate and insurance business flourished. And so by the time I got to college, the step-grandfather, who was so enthused about being a grandfather, paid for large portions of my college and seminary education. That's how I got through school. I got through school because a man decided to do the right thing to his own detriment. And he was a blessing to me. And I was just a step-grandson. I wasn't his own flesh and blood. May I say to you, some of us are going to need to do something similar with God. That's got to be the Spirit. Dear God, whatever you want, I'm available. The answer is yes before I know what you require. I'm going to do your will no matter what the cost. Now let me move to the next point real quickly, and that is the solution. Because of the needs and because of the path, because of the church's charge, the Great Commission Facilities Committee has come up with some solutions to that. Let me tell you real briefly, without going into too much detail, what the Great Commission Facilities Committee is thinking about. Number one, we believe that we can keep and maintain and leverage the columns and the steeple out front. In fact, doing anything to those, removing them or something. The door was shut on that a year ago. And so the intent the entire time has been to leverage and make use of the iconic nature of the steeple and columns. Downtown has the arches. The business district's got the steeple and columns. Amen? So that's what we've got. All right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is that they're imagining 
repurposing this area, removing all the pews, and turning it into an atrium and a hospitality place for people to gather before and after worship, and maybe even on Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, during the week, and turning it into an atrium and turning it into a hospitality area. Some of these windows would become doors into the memorial garden so you could see into that. Some of these windows over here would become doors into the next solution, and that is a new worship center on the east side. A new worship on the east side that will about double our capacity, we think, and where we would have worship there. It would be updated. It would be modern. It would be attractive to the community. In fact, the front would be such that it would have an awful lot of glass and they, it would be very inviting to the rest of the community. The final solution is to build an entryway at the front of Building B through which people could enter and turn that into the main entrance of the property. And all along, all along there, there would be glass. You'd hit the column and steeple, and then there would be glass over on this side in order that folks from the highway could see the people, sometimes even in worship, and feel a sense of welcome, warmth, and invite. Now, Jeff Crocker is going to go into a lot more detail when he gets here November the 10th, and we want you to be a part of that. That is what they're contemplating. Now, listen, nothing's final, nothing's decided. The church would have to approve that, but that's where their thinking and their concepts are now. And again, for four months, we're going to go through several rounds of communication and feedback. Now, lastly, I want to cover the promise. I want to cover the promise. The truth is is that God makes some outrageous promises to His people. Psalms 84.11 says, The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly before Him. No good thing, people. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly before Him. Well, of course not. When two million Jews left Egypt to get to the promised land, God provided for them two million gallons of water a day for 40 years. Two million uh, pounds of food a day for 40 years. And then enough for their livestock to drink and to eat. Of course, God does not withhold any good thing from those who are upright before Him, the Scripture says. Uh, the Bible teaches in uh, John 1.16, of Jesus' fullness we have all received, those who trust Him, and grace upon grace. Endless grace. Grace coming in, bene- in, in, in um, uh, unlimited benefits, an unlimited flow into life. Jesus did not come to steal, kill, and destroy, but He came to give life and life more abundantly. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but freely gave him up for us all, how shall he not also freely give us all things? He's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, and he's given us great and precious promises all the way through. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing in the will of God that an individual or church cannot do. It can be done if we'll follow Him. One poet wrote wrote, um, uh, these words, And the Lord God whispered and said to me, These things shall be, and these things shall be. No help shall come from the scarlet skies till my people rise. Till my people rise, my arm is weak. I cannot speak till my people speak. When men are dumb, my voice is dumb. 
I cannot come until my people come. From over the flaming earth and seas, the cry of my people must come to me. Not till their spirit break the curse can I own my own in the universe. But if my people rise, if my people rise, I will answer them from the storming skies. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm ready to rise. How about you? God is ready to rise to meet his people. God is willing to take a stand. God is a God of love. God is a God of hope. God is a God of promise. God is a God of word. God is a God of covenant. God is going to come through anytime his people unify and do his will together. Our best days are ahead of us because of him. Thank God for that. He's going to come through. But it all starts with abandoning ourselves to him. And I think we're ready to do that today. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you in Jesus' name. Oh, we bless you. You're so good. You're so kind. You've manifested your greatness and goodness.